ever seem to you that often the wrong people are the ones who are prospering? It's not the good people that seem to do well. It's the people who lie and cheat and steal their way to the top. Ones who enjoy success very often are not the ones who deserve it. I think for every uh, every person that we can think of that is enjoying a tremendous success and prosperity, we can think of a dozen more who are more deserving and yet are not prospering, in fact are suffering or doing without. And it doesn't always make sense. Why do the worst people enjoy success and prosper while the good people suffer? And it's not just that these wicked people are prospering, but that they're prospering at the expense of the righteous or of other people. They're climbing a ladder and climbing over and stepping on everybody else so that they might enjoy some form of success or prosperity. And when we become aware of something like this, we, we, we recognize the injustice there. We cry out for justice to be done. We, we, we recognize this is not right. But even more so when this happens directly to us, when we are the ones being taken advantage of, when we are the ones being stepped on so that someone less deserving might enjoy something a little bit nicer than what they currently have. Not only do the wicked have the, the seem to have all the success and opportunities uh, wrapped up for just them, they seem to use that to their advantage to continue in their wickedness, to make it even worse than they were before. They increase and take advantage of, of good people and add to their wickedness to the depths of their sin and guilt. This is the question that the psalmist is considering in Psalm 49. This is the question that I think many people have considered over the course of history. This is classified as a wisdom psalm because of the instruction that the psalmist gives to us concerning this, what is called a proverb or a parable. Because the first few verses here tell us that the purpose of Psalm 49 is to impart wisdom and understanding and shed a little light on a very perplexing problem. And so if you notice a very simple outline, but one I, I hope that will be very clear to you that you'll be able to uh, make some sense and just put some bones in the bulletin and then we'll put some skin and meat on the bones in, this, in the sermon this morning. We see first of all that the psalmist is is begins these twenty verses with an introduction. I remind you, as we study through this, this is a song that would have been sung in public worship. So this is a this is a song that we much like we sang, "Come, thou Almighty King, Lord, I need you." They would have sung the words of Psalm forty nine. My my Bible has a, a a little subheading for each of the psalms. This one, "Why should I fear in times of trouble?" I don't know what the 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 term the title was that would have been used that they would have known as they began to sing this song, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high together, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. I want you to notice, first of all, that this, this is a psalm for everybody. This psalm applies to each and every person, rich and 
poor, great, small, all inhabitants of the world. This is not just for the people of God. This is for every person, all humanity, because, as we'll see in verse number 10, it applies to everybody in the sense that everybody dies. So the psalmist begins his song by saying, hey, listen up, everybody. I want to explain something to you. In fact, I want to talk to you about something that many of you have thought yourselves, and many of you have not been able to come up with an answer to. Here is the, here is the question. Here is the proverb or the parable that I am going to explain. He says, I'm going to incline my ear to it in verse number four, or consider it. I'm going to think about this proverb for a moment, and then I'm going to solve it or explain the riddle in the form of a song. And by calling it a proverb, he is acknowledging the fact that this is, he's not the first one that ever thought about this. This is something that has been uh, in, in regular, uh, regular conversation. It's one that's been uh, considered by many hearts. Why do the wicked seem to prosper at the expense of the righteous or the innocent? Specifically, he is going to speak here to the one who is not enjoying the earthly success. Though there is a bit of a warning to those who are succeeding, to those who are prospering, the, the, the psalmist specifically uh, seems to be addressing uh, those who are being taken advantage of, not experiencing the success, not enjoying the prosperity. And he himself identifies as one of these people, as we'll see as we get into the psalm. And this is someone who is facing the question, why them? Why are they the ones that enjoy? Why are they the ones that succeed? Why are they the ones that are, that are seeming to get away with this and not, not, just, not just survive, but thrive in their wickedness? And it's not a jealousy issue. It's not that the psalmist is saying, why them and not me? I didn't get one. I didn't get a, a, a portion of that super great blessing. It's not a jealousy issue. It's particularly because of it affects him negatively or it affects these people negatively. Not, not the prospering people, but the people by whom those people are enjoying their success. And he's, and he's saying, why them? Because of the way that it's affecting us. He calls it a time of trouble in verse number 5. And this truly is a time of trouble and a time when fear is a very natural response. So this is his introduction. He's leading it up and saying, everybody, everybody come on in, listen up. I'm going to explain something to you. And then beginning in verse number five, he asks a question. But notice that the question is not one that requires an answer, but one that is really already implied. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Now, first, we need to ask ourselves, why would someone need to experience fear because somebody else prospers? Generally, jealousy would be the natural response, right? Someone else, uh, remember when you were a kid and you went over to someone else's birthday party and uh, that, that, that little green monster of jealousy would, would pop up because they got the cooler birthday present than you did? And, and, uh, or uh, even if we go to the younger kids' parties, we have to remind all of the little ones there, you don't get to open these presents. These are all for little Billy, and you'll get your turn. And, uh, it, and, it's, and it's, it's difficult for us to grasp that. Why? He gets all this and I don't get anything? Well, yeah, that's what a birthday party's for. 
But as we grow older, we still deal with jealousy. Your neighbor pulls into the, into the driveway with a brand new car. Uh, your, your coworker is showing pictures at work of, of a brand new house that they just upgraded and they've got 10,000 more square feet and, 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 and generous acreage and they've got horses or they've got, uh, boats in the, in the lake or whatever it may be. And jealousy is normally the, the feeling that rises up within us when someone else succeeds. But here, the, the psalmist doesn't talk about jealousy. He talks about fear. Why should I be afraid when someone prospers? Specifically, he's calling this a time of trouble. Well, as we continue reading, as we've already read, but verses 5 and 6 explain to us why he associates their prosperity as his trouble. It's because he is surrounded by the iniquity or the wicked deeds of his enemies. These aren't just random people who are prospering, but his enemies, his foes. Look back at verse number 5. He describes the time of trouble as when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. These are treacherous enemies. I spent quite a bit of time looking at original words here in in this psalm because the the different translations, many of you have a a, a various translation in English of these Scriptures, and you may see it in in a different word there. And, And I wanted to understand why it was so different in, in the, in the, in the various translations here. Uh, the, the, the ESV here is using the word, uh, those who cheat me. Uh, some, uh, use, uh, uh, my foes, my treacherous foes. Uh, King James even uses the word heels. That's an old word. We don't, we don't think about, uh, as a per, to describe an enemy, but it's, it's our he, heel or a cheater or a deceiver. Verse 6 goes on to describe them not just as someone who takes advantage of me, but it is, verse 6, someone who trusts in his wealth. They, they, they boast in having their great riches at my expense. They take advantage of me, they get rich in the process, and then they gloat about it. And they boast in their riches because they see that their wealth is their power. Their wealth is their security. Their power is what keeps them safe and happy. And so they continue to take advantage of people, namely the psalmist here, because they believe that more wealth equals more stability. More power equals more security. And therefore, the more I have, the better off I will be, and I don't care who I have to step on or over to get it. These are why these are his enemies. This is why he calls them treacherous foes, cheaters, deceivers, and heels. So the singer is watching these wicked people prosper at his expense. And he sees this as a time of trouble. But notice that the question is surprising. Because though it is a time of trouble, it is not a reason to be afraid. It is not a reason to fear. Why should I fear in times of trouble? He doesn't give an answer. Because there's no reason to fear in times of trouble, but he gives us some explanations. In verses 7-12, through we see two of them. And ultimately, it's because wealth, the psalmist understands, isn't everything. Wealth isn't as big a deal as these people think it is. In verse number 7, he says, Truly, no man can ransom another. 
or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly. Never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This first explanation is very simple. He says, because nobody lives forever. The reason that I don't need to be afraid when they, the wicked, prosper is because they won't live forever. They're going to die. All of the most wicked people that have ever walked the face of this earth eventually die. And the people that live today that we would consider evil and wicked and, 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 and the worst of among us will one day be gone. Because nobody lives forever. And no matter how much money you have, it won't be enough to buy off death. Science fiction wants to, you know, make us believe that you can freeze, you know, if you got enough money, you can freeze your body or you can, you can, um, you know, go into some hypersleep and wake up a thousand years later, transfer all your thoughts and your, and your emotions into some computer and live on forever. And all of this is ridiculous. You can't live forever. Death will come. And no one can afford the price that it costs to buy a person from death. That's what he says there in verse number 7. Nobody can ransom anybody else. He can't ransom himself. He can't ransom your brother. Think about all of the, the expense that we make in order to prolong our lives. The health insurance premiums, the amount of money that we spend on medicines, band-aids, and and all of the things and the health and the gym and the, the, the fancy healthy foods that we're supposed to be eating that uh, are not as fun to eat as the Fruit Loops, but we, we buy those too. And we've spent all of this money and time and effort and energy on prolonging our lives. But in the end, we're going to die. There's no getting around it. You're going to die healthy or you're going to die fat. But you're going to die. It might extend the, the, uh, the, 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 the quality of the life that you do have, but you're not going to keep it going forever. In fact, every doctor is merely just pushing death a little further down the road. They can't save you from dying. They might save us today, but not forever. And verse number 7 there explains that. Nobody can buy it back or give to God the price of his life. And then verse number 8 explains, because it's so high. Because the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And here, the various translations present this verse number 8 in, in different ways. And I, I wanted to just present at least two of them to you so that you could see that and then, and then come to the conclusion for yourself. I think that either way that it's translated, the main idea rises to the surface. And that's that no amount of money can buy death. Then we look in the ESV, if you're using an, an NIV, you see it the same way. The ransom is costly and can't suffice. It'll never be enough. If you're looking in a King James or in the New American Standard, uh, this is in, uh, pr proposed as an inference, as, as uh, that the, the soul's redemption is costly and therefore the person should cease trying to live forever. Like, stop trying to do this. It's a, it's a vain pursuit. But again, ultimately it comes back down to you can't do it, so stop. And you don't have enough money. I don't care if you're Bill Gates. I don't care if you're or Warren Buffett, or whoever the, the, the richest people are in the world right now, or the most powerful people in the world right now, you can't stop death. The psalmist asks in Psalm 89, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? The answer is no one. Nobody can stop them. Jesus asked it like this in Matthew 16. 
What shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. You can't give enough to cover the value of your soul. And that's why the Psalms remind us in Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The first explanation why he needs not fear is because nobody lives forever. But then notice in verse number 10, it says that uh, he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beast perish. The second reason is that kind of built on the first reason that no one lives forever and everyone leaves everything behind. I don't care how much you have right now in this life or how little you have, you won't take any of it with you. You ever seen a trailer pulled behind a hearse? It's kind of a joke, but it ain't going in very far. It might go into the ground with him, but it's not gonna, he's not taking it wherever he goes. You can't have the things. The ancient Egyptians spent, uh, spent all kinds of uh, power and effort and money on taking their possessions and their treasures and even their people with them. We take their best slaves. We didn't pay off to be a great slave in Egypt, a great right-hand man, because when that guy died, he was taking you with him. And they would lock you in that tomb, in that pyramid, and uh, you got the honor of dying fit and healthy with your old and dead master. Everybody leaves everything behind. Rich, poor, wise, or foolish, everybody dies. And everything you have is left to another person. And once again, in verse number 11, we see that the translations uh, choose to interpret this uh, slightly different. Again, it comes back to the same thing. The ESV here reads that their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. There's, there's kind of a concessive relationship. Those of you whom I have thoroughly confused in Sunday school the last couple of weeks, you might recognize that word. But anyways, the, the, the verse 11 there is explaining that the, the ir- irony here is that these people die and their home is their grave. This is where they will spend forever, even though they tried to live on by naming lands after themselves. They won't be around to see it. Now, if you're using, again, King James or New American Standard, you'll read, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, it goes on into verse 12, nevertheless, man in his pomp, man in his honor will not remain. You can do all that you want to do in this life to live forever, but you won't last. And when you die you will leave everything behind. No matter how much you have or how little you have, you will not live forever. And that's why very glumly, if you will, verse 12, man in his pomp, in his honor, in all of his glory, he won't remain. He's just like a beast. Right, The richest man, the most powerful man in the world, dies just like an animal. Just like the common beast of the field. You might have a nicer grave, but you're still going to die. You might have a, a more pompous and, and more dramatic funeral service, 
you're still going to the same place that everybody else goes. And this, then, is where we discover whether one is wise or foolish. Because it's not based on how much money you have or how little you have. The Bible is not teaching, and, and particularly this psalm is not teaching, that money is it, it makes you foolish or power makes you stupid. It's not saying that at all. And it's also not saying that the less you have, the wiser you are or the better off you'll be. Because money is, is, is not uh, something that makes you bad or makes you good. But the, the, the psalmist is trying to get across to us, it's not what you have, it's what you trust in. Look at verse number 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Proverbs 11.28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The righteous don't trust in their riches, they trust in the Lord. And he says that whoever trusts in riches will fall. The psalmist says in Psalm 52, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So the instruction here that we find for the next three verses is kind of an implied instruction, but it asks the question, where is your trust? In whom or in what do you place confidence? Where is your trust? Verse 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. We'll get to the verse 15 in just a moment. But notice verses 13 and 14 are summarizing. This is what happens. This is the foolish confidence that exists when people trust in wealth or trust in earthly riches or power or fame or whatever it may be. He trusts in these things, but they are destined for death and destruction. And it's, and it's not just those who have the money that trust in their money. You can trust in money and not have it and still be just as foolish. That's what verse number 13 is all about. Yet after them, people approve of their boast. You don't have to be rich and famous to be foolish. You can be poor and still think, I just need more money and everything will be good and be a fool because wealth doesn't save you. Notice what happens in verse 14 to those people. Death becomes both their shepherd and their destination. It is both guide and destiny for those who trust in, in wealth and riches. The word Sheol there, sometimes it's used to describe simply the grave where everybody is going to go. Sometimes, and as, it, as it is in this case, it's referring to where the wicked go after death, where they, would, where they will go because they trust in the wrong things. Ultimately, what we see here in verse number 14, at the very end there, they have no place to dwell. We find that the rich and powerful die homeless. No place to dwell. But I like verse 15 because the psalmist is saying, but it's not the case for me. That might be the case for them, but it's not true for me because I have a different outcome. Verse 15, God will ransom my soul. 
from the power of Sheol. Remember the word ransom was used just a few verses before, as well as the word redeem. And he says, no man can redeem his own life. No man can pay the ransom for his own life, but God will ransom me. God will pay the price. The righteous man trusts in God who will redeem and receive him. Derek Kidner calls this one of the mountaintops of the Old Testament hope. That there is a hope that God will redeem. We are, if you will, held at ransom by death. And only God can pay the high cost. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So if death is the shepherd of the fool, the psalmist recognizes the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is the one who leads me beside the still waters, restores my soul, who though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is there to lead me and to comfort me because He is there with me. Therefore, He says, I will fear no evil. The presently troubled that we find here in Psalm 49, those who at present are troubled, will finally be comfortable. But those who are presently comfortable will be finally troubled and helpless. And hopeless. Uh, God says in Hosea verse 13, uh, chapter 13 and verse 14, He says, I shall ransom them, speaking of His people, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now it's interesting because the Apostle Paul picks that up. You may not recognize Hosea 13, 14, but you more than likely have heard the Apostle Paul quote these verses in his letter to the Corinthians because he talks about when those who are in Christ finally do die. There is a hope. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, speaking of the resurrection of the body, he says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is very simple. In what are you trusting today? Where's your hope? Is it in God? Or is it in wealth? Is it in riches? I think that most, if not all of us in the room would say, well, my hope is in God. I trust in God. Sometimes our actions don't agree with our words. We put our hope in God for eternity. We trust that we can't buy our way into heaven. We only rely on the hope and the mercy and the grace that God gives us to us. What about for my daily provisions? Do I look to the almighty dollar? Do I look to having powerful friends and people in high places to get by everything in life? In what do I trust? Do I trust in God or in my money? And really, verses 16-20 through 20 are just a conclusion as he sums up everything. And I'll just walk through it very quickly. He says, in, in, in there's, almost, there's an implied therefore at the beginning of verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. Don't be afraid when other people get rich. Why? Verse 17, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away because everybody dies and everybody leaves everything they have behind. 
For though, verse 18, while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, verse 19, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who never again see light. He may enjoy earthly, temporary prosperity today, but tomorrow will be a different story. Because death surely happens to us all. But notice the theme throughout the psalm has been that death is not the end. Death is just a part. And understanding this truth that there is more after death, understanding this truth is the most valuable thing. Verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Alec Matir wrote that there's death without hope and there's death full of hope. Man can die like the beasts or he can die with understanding. What is it with you? What is it with us? Do we die with the understanding that there is something greater ahead? Or is this all we are living for? Where is our confidence fixed? We can be tempted, as the psalmist teaches us here, we can be tempted to fear and be afraid of these people. We can be tempted to follow the pattern of these people and to think about, well, you know what, if it's working for them, it'll work for me. I might as well just live for money and live for wealth and live for fame and power and pleasure just like they, because it seems to be working out well for them. But the psalmist is reminding us that there is something on the other side. Death will come, but death will not be the last. This life is not all that there is. and It's not even the best part. There's more. And what comes is even better, if you're in Christ. Wealth and riches are not the primary goal. Power and fame. So where is our confidence place this morning? Jeremiah 9, verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. A righteous man knows something greater than money. He knows God. And it is in God he trusts. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. He will ransom our souls from death. And one day he will receive us to himself. Let us trust in him who ransomed us, who sees us.